Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to let you know that the conversation you're about to listen to was recorded before the Queen died. I'm not known for agreeing with the conventional wisdom, but in fact, I basically agree with the conventional wisdom here that Brexit was a shit show, whatever um, <laughs> its goals were. I'm surprised that you are not pleased that an oligarchy has been dealt such a devastating blow. I thought that's something that you as a supporter of monarchy versus me as a supporter of democracy, I thought one thing we would share in common is that this impact against the rule of the few, the rule of the oligarchy, is a good thing. You know, if I if I look up at the sky and my, my worst enemy looks up at the sky and we both agree that it's blue, then the sky is blue. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my guest this week, Curtis Yarvin. Curtis, welcome to the show. Brendan, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. And I think this will be an interesting conversation. I hope it will be an interesting conversation because, not least because you and I come at similar issues from really different perspectives. So you are an increasingly influential voice on the new right in the US, and I come very much from the left. Uh, You have been critical of democracy, or you've argued that democracy is not really possible, whereas I describe myself as a radical Democrat. I think the Mm. solution to society's problems is to have more democracy rather than less. And you and others on the new right have talked about the idea of a neo-monarchy, of a strongman, even an American Caesar-like figure who might swoop in and fix the rot in contemporary Western society. Whereas I have to put my cards on the table and say that I find that idea pretty objectionable and almost in the realm of despotism and and dictatorship. And as a Democrat, my preference is for millions of strong men and millions of strong women who would make decisions about society on a day-by-day, engaged, liberal, democratic basis. So those are some of the things that you and I, some of the big things that you and I will hopefully talk about and very possibly tussle over. Lovely. Can I give a brief, as brief a response that I, as, as course, I can? Of course, please. I, I think my brief response is that we actually agree in, in that I think that in some ways, the Republican form of government with millions of strong or millions are, I mean, well, I mean, of course, we're talking about the world here and there are not millions of people in the world. There are uh, billions of, the, of people in the world. But let's just let's just agree that what we want is we want a world containing a world in which government is performed by the citizens who are men and women uh, adult men and women, uh, adult men and women with intact neurological facilities who are all strong and who are all wise. And basically, this would be a republic of the wise. I don't know that any such thing has ever existed, but I know mm-hmm. that a lot of people have tried to get there. And this is really the ideal uh, republic. The I think the trouble comes when 
you're thinking about this problem and you're saying, this is what I want. I want a lot of things. I want a Lamborghini. Do I have a Lamborghini? I don't have a Lamborghini. So uh, what do I do with what I have? And I think my view of politics is fundamentally a realist view, which essentially starts with what we have. And, yeah. uh, you know, one of the, the basic principles of, of pre-modern political science is that no constitution is ideal for all peoples. And so if we had, you know, a nation of these citizens that you imagine, uh, I think it would be a quite a reasonable perspective that this should be the right form of government. Uh, for the nation that we actually have, uh, what is the right form of government? And I think that's where you and I disagree at a very basic level. Yeah. So, so in terms of, uh, of what we have, I think that might actually be a good leaping off point because what we have in the UK is, I think, what we have recently lived through is one of the most important acts of democracy of modern times. So the European Union, you write a lot about oligarchy, monarchy, and democracy as the three forms of government. I want to ask you about that in a moment. But I think the European Union in the modern era is probably the best example of an oligarchy that masquerades as a democracy in the sense that this is essentially an unaccountable commission, the European Commission, that makes laws and they're rubber stamped by the European Parliament, which is ostensibly democracy in the sense that we can vote for it, but very few people do because people in Europe are not stupid. They know when they're being conned. They know it's not a genuine act of democracy to put people into the European Parliament. And uh, the, the thing in the UK that got rid of this oligarchy and its influence over British politics, its, its um, nefarious and undemocratic influence over British politics was democracy. So it may not have been a Lamborghini in the sense of being uh, having a perfect democratic system, but it was absolutely, uh, I would argue, the most important democratic act of modern times in the sense of the wisdom of the crowd being deployed against the jaundiced view of the oligarchy in Brussels and the self-preserving instincts of the establishment in the UK itself and the deployment of that wisdom of millions and millions of people to a very, very progressive, important end, which is to uh, take Britain out of the EU, I thought was a very good example of democracy in action. So it's not that I'm saying that there is a future point at which democracy will be a perfected institution, but even what we have now in terms of people being able to make uh, important decisions and wise decisions, it's already in a pretty good state, right? Uh, well, I was just over there in the UK and I was talking to some people about uh, Brexit, which I actually sometimes use as kind of a, a case study in, you know, sort of populist shit show. And I would argue that Brexit, uh, you know, I sort of, I'm not known for agreeing with the conventional wisdom, but in fact, I basically agree with the conventional wisdom here that Brexit was a shit show, whatever um, <laughs> its goals were. You know, I, I used to read Richard Norris' old blog, uh, EU Referendum, back in the, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know if you know Richard North, but uh, he sort of introduced me to a certain school of Euroscepticism. I don't know if you've met, read uh, Paul Boleyn, for example, A Throne in Brussels, sort of about the establishment of the EU. Another good book on it uh, is called Atlantic Century. I'm forgetting the author, but Atlantic Century is a super cool book because it's actually a hagiography 
of the American diplomats who created the EU, in case you thought that the EU was any more European than the Warsaw Pact is Polish. And so you're basically looking, I mean, sort of what you what you say about the European Commission and the European Parliament uh, is, is obviously true. These are perfect examples of oligarchy that are, of course, very reminiscent of the USSR and originate in many ways, in a lot of the same kinds of Fabian type philosophies, which, uh, you know, the, the people who how I, I sort of growing up in the Cold War, I always regarded the US and the USSR as like mortal enemies, like, you know, Churchill and Hitler or something. But, uh, you know, one has to realize that they were really rivals and cousins in many ways. And one of the, you know, examples of that is, of course, your use of the word Progressive. I once very much irritated mm -hmm. a, a family member of mine uh, who came, who was a Russian liberal by uh, asking him how he just he described himself as a pro progressive and he'd grown up in the USSR and I asked him how to translate progressive into Russian and he did not at all like the implications of that question. In fact, we're still not talking. So you you know we agree on what the EU is. Uh, on the other hand, you know two things. One is that you know moving power from the European Commission to Whitehall is not particularly a victory in any sense. In fact, you know, I was was out here in the UK, I was talking to, you know, various various British people and various some of them are in government, some of them not. And, you know, one thing that I impression that I wanted to confirm from my opinion as an idiotic, you know, American whose only knowledge of British politics is is yes minister and in the thick of it, you know, is <laughs> This hypothesis, which is that Whitehall actually loved the existence of the European Commission mm -hmm. because it could drop responsibility on the European Commission and they could, it could say, oh, you know, this is, this is not our fault. You know, we didn't do this, you know. Um, my own observation and when in England, I was like, you know, if you want to convince me that Brexit is real, uh, you know, show me, show me an internet without cookie warnings. Um, I can't believe how much time you waste on those things. Do you have a filter that, that gets rid of them? You know, I thought they were bad <laughs> in the US, but that was just a spillover from Europe. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, it, you know, it's such a classic example of like a policy area that's controlled by just this like small band of idiots. You know, in any case, the stepping stepping back from that, when I look at Brexit from and I think this feeds back to the original question, which is that, you know, it's like I think you believe in democracy in a certain sort of way that um, very, very naive monarchists, I, you know, I'm really more of a neo-monarchist, as you put it, than, than a monarchist. A really naive monarchist would say, okay, how do we um, get to a monarchy? The answer would be, let's devolve power back on the queen. Let's have Queen Elizabeth, you know, take up the, the powers that she still has in the English constitution. Uh, you know, I was asking some people in the UK whether in a complete hypothetical, if, you know, the queen took a pill and became young and strong and wanted to be the real queen of England again, could she actually do that? Um, opinions varied. Apparently there was this interesting thing with, with Mount Batten in the seventies and almost coup or something. Uh, that sounded pretty cool to me, frankly. Um, but, uh, in any case, the problem is she does, she has those powers and she doesn't want them. 
And, you know, this is sort of what I would say when you try to devolve power from Europe, of course, back to Whitehall. Of course, I, I assume that you have no particular brief for, for Whitehall. You're a radical Democrat. You would like to push those powers back onto the people. Well, the people don't want them. The people are not suited to them. I mean, have you yeah, been but to that's, that, I mean, but so, so how, how you're, you're basically you're trying to sort of restore this virtuous system. You're like, OK, maybe if we give them more power, they'll become more virtuous in the Roman sense, more worthy of their citizenship. No, the point I would make about Brexit, I mean, firstly, to describe Brexit as a shit show, this is what I this is what I find very interesting about you, Curtis, which is that um <laughs> The things I've read about you, including the recent Vanity Fair piece about the new right in the U.S., the post. Can I can I interrupt for a moment? I you know I can't completely endorse the term new right because as a student of history, yeah. someone 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 uh, uh, counted the number of times uh, that term had been used, and this is actually the seventh time in the 20th <laughs> century alone. So you know, yeah, uh, okay, I, I like, all right, but the but- sorry, go on. That yeah, the kind of movement that you're part of, and you can come back in a moment and explain how you conceive of the movement that you're part of, or or the ideas that you're part of. People refer to it as neo-reactionary. Some people refer to it as new right. The Vanity Fair piece w- uh, about the new right, as they did refer to it, quoted you at length and talked about you at length. But the, the thing that strikes me about the new right, or whatever we're calling it, or the movement that you're part of it, the neo-reactionary movement, is that very often it sounds to me to be almost indistinguishable from the undemocratic liberal elite that you and I, I thought, would have shared concerns about. So for example, when you describe Brexit as a shit show, I hear that every single day of my life. I hear it from The Guardian. I hear it from the BBC. I hear it from every member of uh, the Whitehall establishment who still haven't faced up to the reality that the people rejected their preferred system of governance and argued for a more democratic system of governance. So the argument I would make about Brexit, the reason I don't think it was a shit show, and the reason I think it was important to bring powers back to the UK, even if they are put into the hand of a Whitehall establishment that doesn't care very much for ordinary people, as we all know, is because you are, we are, the British people are constantly removing the frustrating layers of bureaucracy and bringing democracy closer to where we live and closer to where we talk and closer to where we are thinking. And I think that's a very important process, even well, though, so, but, but I'm getting to a yeah. question on this, uh, that firstly, I think you're wrong to work, use the word devolved. The European Union does not devolve power. This power in terms of weakening the European Union, which Brit- the British people did by removing one of the key players in the EU, uh, that was not an act of devolving by the European Union. And the European Union actually was incredibly reluctant to see Brexit through and still hasn't seen it through. This was not an act act of devolving on the part of the EU. This was an act of radical democratic demand on the part of the British people, which I really think is worth celebrating. But my question for you, what distinguishes your view, your concern about something like Brexit and and your idea that it's a shit show from the anti-democratic impulses of the woke elites or the liberal elites or however we're going to refer to them, or the cathedral as you've referred to it, which is the nexus of the uh, of academia and the media 
and the cultural establishment. Where is the distinction so, here? Because from both yeah, sides, so, I so hear I can, a kind I of I, I hear a contempt for ordinary people's ability and their right to determine the state in which they live. There was a, uh, a phrase we used to say very comically at my um, a company I worked for back in Berkeley about uh, you know uh, twenty years ago. Um, when there was some technical difference, one of us would say to the other, um, you need to step outside your linear Western way of thinking. And, uh, you know, but, but it was, it was, it was you know, <laughs> not delivered in incomplete seriousness. And so without, without delivering an incomplete seriousness, I would say that you need to step outside your linear Western way of thinking. And I think you're thinking in basically two dimensions where you should be thinking in three, because there are not two forms of government. There are three. Mm-hmm. And, if you want to sort of answer we have my all question, three, we have all three of them in the UK, if, by the way. If you want to answer, well, yes, you have one of them in an idiolated form, which is designed, you know, was designed uh, about um, three and a half centuries ago to block its own return. But, yeah. uh, you know, Britain has always had a, you know, since 1688, Britain has, has had a, essentially a fake monarchy designed to pretend that prevent the return of a real one. But, uh, you know, going back to sort of your question and kind of the way it's in which it's meant. The simplest answer to that question is to say, if you imagine a quadrant, my attitudes toward democracy are very simple. If you imagine a quadrant where um, one axis of the quadrant is uh, Britain should be a democracy, another ax- uh, axis of the quadrant is Britain is a democracy. Uh, I'm the one who is neither the one of the very, very few people who is, it isn't, and it shouldn't be. And it isn't and it shouldn't be would be, I believe, the historical take that sort of for the vast majority of British history, anyone would take. And so I believe that that, you know, subject just deserves respect. You know, if you go to the Wikipedia page for Athenian democracy, uh, you'll encounter, of all things, a quote by at least the last time I looked, you never know in Wikipedia, you'll encounter a quote by a modern professor of history who remarks on the easily discernible fact that many historical periods have attempted to, as we would now say, LARP Athenian democracy. And what's strange is that there are a few forms of government that are so completely condemned by all the primary source literature on them of the time. We have very few people who wrote about this system and who admired it. What they say is that it screwed up the Peloponnesian War and it killed Socrates. So, you know, stepping back into, you know, the the situation of Britain today, it's like when I hear you talk about, you know, when I say like devolved and clearly that is like sort of legally wrong or formally wrong in your construction, uh, what I would encourage you to do as a way of stepping outside your linear Western way of thinking is you appear to sort of inhabit this kind of very, very rich space of kind of symbolic political gestures. And so you're like, okay, you're sort of focused when you're like, Brexit is not a shit show. You're sort of focused in this really beautiful way, in a way, on its kind of symbolic impact. And I think it's okay to say that symbolism matters. Like symbolism is clearly an important thing. Like let's sort of, and, and so let me not sort of counsel you to like throw away your symbolic attachments here as you step outside your linear Western way of thinking. Um, what I want you to do and sort of to basically realize that Brexit is a shit show is essentially just to concentrate on its completely objective, non-symbolic impact in the ways 
of has it made people's lives better? Has mm-hmm. it made people's lives worse? Has it made them, uh, yeah. you know, has it made things work better? Has it, has it made things work less well? Not the abstract Brexit, the goal of Brexit, whatever it was, because, you know, one of the things that I found when talking to people in the UK about Brexit, this is also one of the things I, I believed in, maybe I got my belief reinforced, is that the people who believed in Brexit believed in it, their unanimity was purely symbolic. And so they all agreed in the concept and the idea of Brexit and the sort of symbolic concept of British independence. And yet they'd actually had no agreement whatsoever on once the ship got out of port where they wanted to take it. And so, you know, they're like, we are going to, you know, we're going to, we're like a liveaboard yacht permanently tied up to Brussels. We'll like throw the chain overboard, set sail and go somewhere. And then you go into the harbor and nobody really really wants to go anywhere in particular. And if anyone does want to go anywhere in particular, it's, um, you know, maybe if there's some consensus, it's about stopping immigration, which you don't really have the power to do. And so basically, the, the your yacht just drops anchor in the harbor. And now instead of walking aboard, you have to take a little dinghy to the pier. And to me, that would be a shit show. And that's why I describe Brexit as a shit show. It's a hard time out there financially for many people right now, which is why we at Spiked are more grateful than ever for the support of our generous readers. Spiked is completely free to read, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to fund our pro-freedom, pro-democracy journalism. This helps us to continue growing and to reach more and more people. Over the next few weeks, we're doing a donation drive to fortify us for the months ahead. So to those who can afford it, please do consider digging deep. For a limited time only, we also have a special offer. Those who donate £50 or more will receive a free signed copy of Joanna Williams' brilliant new book, How Woke One. Plus, you'll get a whole year's access to Spiked Supporters, our donor community where you can access exclusive events and other perks. To make a donation, go to www.spiked.com hyphen online.com slash donate. That's www.spite-online.com slash donate. I think the point about the symbolic nature of Brexit, I mean, obviously there's a symbolic component to Brexit in terms of the devastating blow that has been delivered to one of the most corrupt oligarchies of modern times. I'm surprised that you are not Please. I don't think it's a devastating blow at all. I think, you know, the thing is, if you Wait, just... hold on, hold on. I'm surprised that you are not pleased that an oligarchy has been dealt such a devastating blow. I thought that's something that you, as a supporter of monarchy versus me as a supporter of democracy, I thought one thing we would share in common is this is that it's a good thing that can this describe, impact against the rule of the few, the rule of the oligarchy, is a good thing. But more importantly, and this this will get to a question for you, Beyond the symbolic component, the the real impact on people's lives is tangible and measurable. 
So you, I think when you came to the UK, it's possible you were speaking to the wrong people because there are lots of Brexiteers in positions of influence uh, in Westminster, in certain sections of the political class who have rather lost their bottle over the past six years because they've seen the backlash against Brexit from the establishment, from what you might refer to as the cathedral, the academic elites, the media elites, and sections of the business elites. They've seen the backlash. They've they've lost their metal and their bottle in response to that. But if you go up and down the country, as I have done many times over the past few years, you will meet many, many people and you will encounter many, many communities upon whom Brexit has already had a tangible impact in terms of how they conceive of themselves in society, how they That's conceive- symbolic. How, no, it's not, it's not symbolic at all. How they conceive of their democratic power and how they conceive of the future of this country in terms of moving forward in a far more democratic direction. There's nothing symbolic about that at all. It's perfectly measurable as an improvement of people's sense of citizenship and as an improvement of their sense that they belong to this community and that they have a purpose in this community. And to poo-poo that, I think, uh, from whether that's coming from the new right or from the new left, I I think is is actually unforgivable. But the question I wanted to ask you, just to, to press the question I asked you earlier, what is the difference between what you're saying about democracy, specifically what you're saying about Brexit, and also by extension what you're saying about democracy, and what the establishment in the UK has been saying about the cathedral in the UK. One of your big ideas is the cathedral, this undemocratic, unaccountable former of opinion and former of ideas. Uh, they are saying the exact same thing. And I've heard it every single day in my discussions with them, that Brexit was a shit show, that it has no measurable benefit, and that it was a symbolic gesture that was all about immigration. What you have, The way in which you have just summarized Brexit is completely indistinguishable from how that unaccountable elite has summarized Brexit. So is there a difference between these sure, two views? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if I if I look up at the sky and my my worst enemy looks up at the sky and we both agree that it's blue, then the sky is blue. Just to answer a couple of that points those points as quickly as as possible, you know, I understand the effect that you mean. I would ask it ask you to put that effect on the sense of citizenship and you know similar intangibles i would like you to put that whatever label you would like to use for that effect i don't need you to discount that effect i just need you to put it in a separate category with the effects like a giant ballooning bubble of paperwork and you know various shit shows to export industries and various those are those are the kinds of things things that make you know those kinds of changes in people's lives where suddenly they're so like is, is Curtis Yarvin is Curtis Yarvin a remainer? Is that what we discovered? I, I, no, no, no. I, you are a remainer. No, I, I. If you chose to Rex uh, to Brexit to restore the British Empire, I would be perfectly happy with that. And so, the, no one wants um, the British Empire. So, so yeah, of course you don't. You know, when it, when you ask, for example, you know, why am I not in favor of this uh, devastating blow? I'm like, let me outline what a devastating blow looks like. A devastating blow looks like the closure of the Stasi in 
what it was in 1990. It looks like, you know, one day the Burlymont is doing what it's doing. The next day, the doors are shut. The building is padlocked. Everyone gets their pension. And three days after that, the demolition team begins its work. And you need to actually, not only do you need to lay off everyone, you need to actually take down the buildings. If you want basically a real defeat for the European Commission, the European Commission needs to cease to exist. And so, yeah. you know, when, it, when it, it's just that we have very, very different, you know, definitions of sort of devastating and yours again sort of comes from kind of a symbolic space. And so, you know, one of the things you really, really don't want to do in an intellectual, you know, struggle is to give your opponents a situation where they're on higher ground than you because they're accepting an objective reality and you're denying it. I would say that Brexit is a shit show, not because the idea of Brexit is a shit show. I think the idea of Brexit is actually absolutely essential. I think that like uh, you and I have the same opinion of Brussels. Probably mine is more negative than yours in that I basically see it as a, a tentacle of the State Department. Nonetheless, if I'm trying to do something, I can do it well or do it badly. It is often the case that it is better not to do something at all than to do it badly. That is very frequently the case in both politics and war. And yeah, I think that Britain to me is in a state of emergency, which would justify almost any sort of effective government. And so, you know, what I basically object to is what you're doing when you basically do something that is symbolically beautiful and symbolically correct and yet has a you know you fail in that process like this whole thing of negotiating brexit with the eu like the fact that you say you don't need their permission but in fact it looked to me like you needed their permission and so you know if brexit is like the fall of east germany then you know next day europe is like a foreign country that's clearly not what happened here and and you had this crazy thing with northern ireland like you know the the objective tangible results of this were absolutely atrocious what most people wanted was simply less immigration they wanted to keep britain that's british they couldn't true. even say that and and so well, that's many not right. people certainly wanted it they didn't get that and so you know the thing is to say you know, I agree with you symbolically, at least as far as a devastating blow against a certain oligarchy, we part company with what should be done after that devastating blow. Okay, so, I mean, there's two things to say in response to that. The first thing is that it's just not true that the overarching factor in people's vote for Brexit the 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit was the question of stopping immigration because for two reasons. Firstly, because the polls that were taken right after the vote for Brexit indicated that immigration, control of immigration was certainly high up there, but at the top was the question of sovereignty and the question of if you are expected to live under a law, then you should have some democratic command over the people who make that law, which is the uh, guiding principle of democracy going back 300, 400 years. But more importantly, I think the the idea that it, the objective reality is simply a shit show is just not true. The objective reality is that the European Union is more weakened now than it has been at any time in its history, and that's You're partly down to the space. that's partly down to the blow that was delivered by the British demos, and it's also partly down to various other interlocking crises that have uh, impacted on the EU and um, and other uh, institutions around the world. Uh, and the objective reality in the UK is that there is a clearer image than we have ever had, certainly in my lifetime, of the distance and the 
antagonism between ordinary people and what you might refer to as the cathedral, which is that nexus of interconnected elites who have a particular view of the world that they guard very, very jealously. Now, those are objective realities. They are not simply symbolic. They are tangible realities, which I think are incredibly positive. I want to put the question to you one more time, just to see where we get with this. Would you have voted for Remain? Would you encourage Britain to return to the European Union? Uh, you know, I generally don't vote. It's difficult for me to answer the question because I am not under the illusion that I am steering the ship. My attitude toward essentially all elections is more or less the same as your attitude. Do you vote in European Parliament elections? No, absolutely not. Exactly. That's that's why that's why I don't vote in elections at all. <laughs> um, and uh, see 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 we're we're on the, it's it's just a matter of adjusting <laughs> the dials. But but we're on you know I think at a certain level um, the same page. Um, like the feeling of like if you're trying to like steer a ship that you don't have control of your first step is to get control of it. I think that's the the point that perhaps we in an abstract sense agree on and I would I would I would hope that you would sort of cast your mind back to your kind of marxist leninist origins and um <laughs> you know if you're a trotskyist then you're a leninist and and I would encourage more more sort of leninism and then you know secondly the question is okay so your goal in this First of all, like I really insist that a line can be drawn between. Let, let me forget the word tangible and talk about, say, maybe concrete. Let me give an example and from my life and what I mean by concrete. So when uh, when Trump was elected, I, you know, my kids were very very concerned. I didn't talk to them about politics at this time, um, which I advise to any parent. And so they heard all this stuff at school, like, oh my god you know, this disaster, that disaster. And my son, who's six years old, comes to me and he says, Pop, how are we going to be able to go to the beach? And I was like, what? He was like, Pop, how? I was like, Henry, I heard you the first time. Uh, what do you even mean? He's like, Pop, when Trump builds a wall around the country, how are we going to be able to go to the beach? <laughs> I was like, wow, you really took him literally. Most people took him literally, but you really <laughs> took him literally. But this error is sort of only... A, an error of degree and that most people were essentially making the same error. They were treating this as though they'd elected a dictator of the United States rather than electing a Windsor. You know, once they realized that they were electing a Windsor and their vote had no particular power, they should have cared about it a lot less. And so I said to my son, I was like, Henry, if you see with your own eyes anything that changes in this country in the next four years because of this election, I'll be surprised. I was a little surprised because I think that there were some executive decisions made during the times of COVID that may have mattered to some extent. But so you can say I was surprised, but you know, that's sort of the normal reality. So the normal reality is that, is that you essentially don't have control of these oligarchies. And so in a way, where we differ is sort of merely in terms of strategy, because basically... I think that the only way to proceed knowing that there is no control over these oligarchies is to give control to something that is strong enough to combat them and defeat them. And I think the power of the people as it is, is, you know, four or five orders of magnitude too weak to do that. And so just as Queen Elizabeth II is four or five orders of magnitude too weak to regain control of the British government.
Okay, that's an interesting point, and that's a good leap off for a couple of things I want. Uh, a couple of more things I wanted to put to you, please. The first thing I would say is that in relation to the European oligarchy, uh, the thing that finally toppled it from the British people's perspective. I don't want to dwell on Brexit too much, but the thing that finally toppled oligarchy from our perspective was not monarchy. Uh, the monarchy, as you say, is fairly toothless, although I don't think it's entirely toothless. Uh, I think it plays an important ceremonial role. And of course, the royal prerogative in this country allows the prime minister to behave like a monarch on the monarch's behalf. So there is a, a substantial element to our supposedly uh, constitutional monarchy. Uh, but it wasn't the monarchy that swept aside the oligarchy. It was democracy. And it was uh, only the power of democracy that could do that in a meaningful way. But I wanted to go from there to ask you about the role of uh, strong, the strong man in politics. And, and one of the ideas you have put forward is the idea of a neo- monarchy, so not necessarily a king or a queen, but an individual possibly kept in check to a certain extent by a board who would have a pretty singular level of power over society in order to rein in, I don't know, the anarchy, the rot, the deep state, the civil service, all those things that you and I would not like. Now, as you've mentioned there, I come from a Trotskyist background. I still, in an incredibly old-fashioned way, consider myself a Trotskyist. And Trotskyism was defined by its opposition to a strong man in, in the sense of being anti-Stalinist, anti-Stalin, against this notion that an individual has the right or the ability to take control of a society in a way that would be uh, civilized, peaceful, and meaningful. So I put it to you that the idea of an American Caesar, which has been put forward by elements of of the new right, and I'm putting that in quote marks, we don't know what to call them, isn't that despotism just dressed up in fairly modern garb? Uh, wouldn't it be a form of dictatorship that most people would bristle against quite rightly? So once again, um, Brendan, I'd like you to step outside your linear Western way of thinking on this. I like having I a Western way of thinking. When you're, seeing, when you're seeing it in two dimensions, you're absolutely correct. But let me try to basically show you that there's a third dimension there. I think what a lot of people mean when they say what the picture that a lot of people have in their minds when they say American Caesar or when they hear mm -hmm. the words American Caesar is not actually a picture of an American Caesar. It's a picture of an American Sulla. And I don't know how, how your, your classics history goes, but let me be sort of very, very, very briefly summarize the wars of Marius and Sulla by saying that, of course, although there are many, many differences in detail, they can, for the modern world, this is the conflict of Hitler and Stalin. And so to understand basically, and, and this is sort of what many people saw before, this is how Cato, for example, may have regarded Caesarism as basically a return of Marius and Sulla. And, you know, in this case of, you know, Caesar was on the side of, of, of Marius, which was the side of the popularis. So he was actually originally a red state man in a sense, a gammon, you know, but, but not a gammon. He was actually a patrician. <laughs> so we'll call him, we'll call him a dark elf. And 
this difference between Sulla and Caesar is very, very important because when we see these kinds of despotisms and focus on these kinds of despotisms we don't like, the word monarchy simply means the rule of one. It's literally the rule of one. So Caesarism and Windsorism, uh, you might say, are, well, Windsorism is not true monarchy because the Windsors are not true monarchs. They're crowned Kardashians. Like when I look at the question of what is the difference between Caesar and Sulla. This to me is a very, very important difference because you might say, or Caesar and Marius, let's, let's, uh, you know, simplify this. Both Marius and Sulla satisfy your definition of despotism. You're sort of, you know, inherently invidious despotism because you're essentially combining when you use that word you're combining the neutral concept of monarchy with a certain set of historical examples that loom very large to you examples that do not loom large in your fisheye lens are elizabeth the first or frederick hohenstaufen you know frederick the second or frederick the great like the list of you know awesome amazing excellent monarchs goes on and on you know i recently went on um Cenk Uyghur's show, I went on the Young Turks and I had a very pleasant conversation with um, Cenk. And one of the things we bonded over was our shared admiration of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, a huge Ataturk fan on both sides. And so, you know, when you think of despotism, you don't really think, uh, you think of Stalin and you don't think of Ataturk. So, you know, the example of Stalin is interesting and important. Stalin was certainly, uh, you know, a very, very bad man. And the process by which he came to power was also very, very bad. He came to power through Leninism. And Lenin, I believe, was also a very, very bad man, uh, which makes Trotsky as a sort of comrade of Lenin's also somewhat suspect. Now, Lenin was a bad man, but he, he certainly understood some things. And we can learn a lot from he was a bad but very successful man like Hitler. But the crucial difference between those despots and the neo-monarchs, the first-generation monarchs, the establishers of, mo of monarchies like a Caesar that I admire, is the important difference is that Caesar understood that he was not there to be the monarch only of his party, but to be the monarch of all of Rome. And so when we translate that into American terms, if you see, for example, an American despot installed by the right wing who very like Hitler considers himself to be at war against blue America and does not even understand when he has won that war, but keeps prosecuting it even after his victory, I would be very opposed to that concept. I would agree with you on that concept. And so what's, what was really important about Caesar is that he understood that he had won. So there's an anecdote from Caesar's victory in the civil wars where he beats the last senatorial army that's against him, the army of Cato. And you strike me as a very Cato-like fellow in your, your sort of belief in the old system. And Cato loses the war, and he does this super Japanese thing. He commits harakiri, in fact. And Caesar captures his, his headquarters. And in his, in his headquarters, there's a chest full of letters from Rome. And Caesar's guys are like, aha, now we know who our enemies are. We can kill them all and take their stuff. Because that's what you did in the era of Marius and Sulla. And Caesar was like, no, actually, you know what we're going to do? This just we're going to burn it. Because you guys don't get it at all. They're all our people because we've won. And so the sense in which basically that the true Caesar cannot be red or blue, but must be, in fact, purple, 
you know, and purple, not in a sense of compromising or like forcing the mixture of these very, very different strands that are in our society, but like sort of allowing, you know, loving them both, respecting them both or respecting all of them because we've created hugely, you know, heterogeneous societies. You know, that sense of Caesar is basically the sense of Caesar that's actually needed. Okay. All right. That's, that is interesting. And uh, I've got a few questions on that. So from my view, what's interesting about the contemporary discussion of neo-monarchism or the potential for an American Caesar, whether it's someone who's red, blue, purple, or whatever, I think what's most important about that is not classical history, so not the history of Caesar himself, although that's obviously incredibly interesting, but the history of the fetishization of Caesar as a pacifying, stabilizing force in, in politics. So, you know, what you are saying does sound to me like some of the stuff that was said in Victorian England in the, in the 19th century in relation to France with the uh, rise to power of Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, uh, the Empire of France, a, a lot of whom, a lot of these people developed a Caesar or Augustus fetish in the sense that they looked to the past to justify a fairly dictatorial role in the present or a role in the present that would hopefully, in their minds, stave off what they saw as the collapse of hierarchies and the emergence of the problem in their view of mass democracy. So all of this stuff is described in great depth by Marx in his writings on Louis Napoleon, where he has the most famous line, which is, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And his point was that there are numerous political trends in our era who cannot justify themselves on their own terms. So what they start to do is to borrow from the language of the past and from the historical figures of the past, and they start to fetishize those people, take them out of their historical context and turn them into these epoch-defying beings who can justify all manner of political approaches in the present. So I put it to you, aren't you doing what people in Britain in, in the 19th century did when they looked rather enviously upon Louis Napoleon as the enforcer of order in chaotic France? Aren't you doing what Marx criticized people for doing more than 150 years ago, which is borrowing the garb and the language and the ideas of the past and possibly even fetishizing them to justify an approach to politics in the present that might not be justifiable on its own contemporary terms? First of all, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud and happy to disagree with Marx. I think that contempt for the past, which is, uh, you know, the whole Marxist tradition is, mm, is, nice. is redolent of is, uh, you know, what historians call presentism is, is one of the largest diseases of our time. Furthermore, I think that, um, those, uh, Victorians who, uh, you know, including my, of course, uh, you know, personal guru Carlyle, who, uh, you know, maybe he may not have fallen for a Louis Napoleon who was just a mountebank. I, you know, I, I can, that's a little too strong for Louis Napoleon, but he's no Napoleon, that's for sure. Napoleon was the real deal. <laughs> yeah. Imagine, if you will, I know that you have this parochial contempt for the past. No. But imagine, put, your, put yourself in the minds, put yourself in your present mind and imagine yourself going to 
uh, you dressed appropriately, etc. You go to a dinner party of those same Victorians who admired Louis Napoleon and had contempt for Marx. And you show them the future, which is certainly the future made by Marx and not by Louis Napoleon. And you're just like, see, imagine how bad it would have been if we'd chosen the other path. And, you know, they see a Britain in uttermost decay. I was looking at some old, this was on a parliament.co.uk site, so I know it was legitimate. If you look at the rates of robbery in Victorian England, all, you know, a level of like control of social order, all achieved without fingerprints, without CCTV, without any of this stuff. There was about one robbery in the 1890s, there was about one robbery per day in all of England. Today, there's that, that many probably per hour in London. And so, you know, when you see the ex- this extraordinary collapse of Britain, as they would have judged it, I know that you believe that you've transcended all of that and gone into a new and more glorious era, but they <laughs> would have judged it differently, you must acknowledge. And then you show them this, or, you know, let's say you go all the way back to, to David Hume, who believed that monarchy was by far the best form of government. And you argue that case with Hume, and you have the evidence of, you know, Britain's, you know, spectacular, uh, you know, position in, in 2022, you know, where it's this humiliating dependency of dependency because Europe is an American dependency that you're like, oh, yeah, we've and, you know, the country is just overrun and decivilized in ways that I can't even begin to describe because your show has to be broadcast in the UK. And the like, and by the way, the loss of, <laughs> the loss of freedom is just insane. Right. And you're like, OK, yeah, yeah, actually, we made the right choice here. And you would you, you would probably make a jack bite of him. You know, I will I will venture that he would basically go back and say, you know what, James the first was absolutely right. You know, and this whole thing of like a mixed constitution and a mixed monarchy. Nope, nope, James James the first had it right. Really what we need in England today is a new Henry the seventh. Not even Henry the eighth. <laughs> Henry the eighth was, I think, too soft for present conditions. <laughs> and so yeah, I mean that's uh I I hope we're not out of time, but I, I think that's my best response there. No, 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 we're not out of time. We've got a, a little bit of time left. I just want to correct you on something. Um, I am not hostile to the past. And in fact, Spiked is one of the foremost critics of the culture of presentism, where people both devalue the great gains of history and also live in fear of the future. We've been stingingly critical of the presentism, which says that the now is all that counts, that history has nothing to show us and that the future has nothing good for us. We've been very critical of that. And I would argue that Marxists and Marx himself, who obviously famously said that he was not a Marxist because Marxists in his even in his era were pretty naff. But I would argue that Marx himself was not hostile to history either. His point in his writings on Louis Napoleon and that tendency to borrow from the language of the past to justify sometimes heroic acti- actions in the present and also questionable actions in the present, his point was that those historical events were incredibly important, but so were these contemporary events and that we should be able to talk about them and justify them in their own terms, even as we are influenced by the past, but not controlled by it. And of course, it's in that same 
essay on Louis Napoleon that he says, man makes history, but not in the circumstances of his choosing. So he is talking about the making of yes. history, the learning from history and the impact on the present that people can have. But, you know, his, his line about Louis Napoleon, and this is something I wanted to put to you, is that he was a grotesque mediocrity masquerading as a hero. And in relation to your strong man suggestion, I don't know if strong man is the right word, you can correct me if it's not, but in relation to your proposition that we should have a, a, a fairly singular figure who would rise above both the rule of the many, democracy, and the rule of the few, oligarchy. In the contemporary moment, more than any other moment, even more than the era of Louis Napoleon and Karl Marx, wouldn't it just be a grotesque mediocrity masquerading as a leader? Don't you, aren't you concerned about that prospect? I have a very simple answer, which is that I would say that if we conceive the people as a collective actor, which is a, as a Democrat with a small d, you clearly do. If you conceive the people as a collective actor, the body of people that voted for Brexit, the Brexiteers, the Brexit nation, mm. that was a grotesque mediocrity masquerading as a hero. No. You want it to be a hero. <laughs> you want it to be a hero. And yet, when by historical standards of human virtue, you're talking shit about my no. friends now, Curtis. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, sure. You know, actually, what's regrettable? Let, let me shift answering your actual question, which is that, you know, is there a shortage of actual heroes? Mm. And and you know, this is really the hard and interesting question: Is there a shortage? All you need is, you know, the the great thing about monarchy in a truly decayed age is that all you need is one hero. But you definitely need a hero and not a grotesque mediocrity. And certainly, when you look at Louis Napoleon's uh, military skills, uh, the first thing, of course, he does is promptly ends his empire by I'm um, going and getting himself captured by the Bosch, the Germans, for American readers, uh, like. You're absolutely right that you need a hero rather than a grotesque mediocrity. And, you know, when you look, for example, at the late Roman Empire, it's sort of clear that the difference between its living in the East and dying in the West was literally sort of one or two heroes. It was a matter of sort of, it was really great man theory that determined mm -hmm. those outcomes. It was very pivotal on individuals. Similarly, you know, the difference between Caesar and Sulla is amazing because one of the things you see after Caesar and Augustus, who really carries on Caesar's platform with a little bit less talent, is that the whole civil war disappears. The whole split, you know, as total monarchy is established, the whole split between optimates and populares, what they called in Roman history, the conflict of the orders, which has been going on for about 400 years, disappears. There's no prospect. There are different kinds of civil wars later in Roman history, but there is no prospect ever again of a popular civil war in, in our sense. And so to say that sort of the prospect of an absolute government achieving this result is, is abstract. No, I think it's very, very concrete and very real. But the question of sort of having, you know, what Carlyle would call a real king rather than a sham king, you know, a Napoleon rather than a Louis Napoleon, I think is fairly simple in that what you need is a school for kings. You need basically <laughs> a large output of kings, of people who are naturally very, very good at directing large numbers of other people in coherent and effective activities. And, you know, it's sort of by the, by the grace of God, by the grace of someone, that's one of the things that the modern world has 
in the private sector and especially in the startup sector that I know. We have no shortage of competent kings. You could take any, you know, I hate the Fortune 500. They're lame from my perspective. You could take any Fortune 500 CEO and say, okay, you're in charge of Britain. Do what you will. Should be the whole of the law. You have the royal prerogative. You have the powers of Henry VII. Go. I think you know all of them would do a, a much better job than is far better job than is currently being done. And I think a fair percentage of them would do a job that would absolutely astound you. And yes, you would be able to see it with your own eyes on the street. You're listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. I think in relation to the question of kings, I think the the element of cross purposes here, or the, uh, I guess the element of disagreement is that in the 1640s, you would have been on the side of Charles I and I would have been on the side of the regicides in terms well, of, you know, uh, that action that was taken to rid England of... Have you heard of a fellow named Cromwell? Uh, because Carlisle, my personal guru, was very much on the side of Cromwell. Yeah, yeah. Of course, but I wanted to, you mentioned Carlyle there, and I wanted to ask you about, not about Carlyle himself. If listeners don't know, Carlyle was a Scottish Victorian writer and essayist and wrote a great deal about politics, of course. And his argument, as you've kind of summarized there, was that basically uh, the history of the world is a biography of great men. Now, I have this real tussle over this question because my history with the great men theory of history is quite a difficult one because on the one hand, I recognize that without heroism, without great men, without those who put their heads up and said, follow me as we take this action or create this new form of government or whatever people were doing, without those heroic figures, lots of leaps forward in history wouldn't have happened, which is why even Marx was concerned about the fact that Napoleon's nephew, Louis Napoleon, was not a hero. He was a mediocrity pretending to be a hero. So heroes are important in history, and I'm very concerned at the way in which the contemporary woke elites downplay the role of great men and argue that everything actually was a bottom-up phenomenon and it all came from ordinary people. However, I would put it to you that where they downplay the role of great men, I would suggest that some people who are interested in an American Caesar or an, a, an authoritative figure who could take control in what I would view as a despotic fashion, I think that you downplay the role of the masses in those historical events and those historical leaps forward. So, you know, for example, in from my perspective, the regicides, you could list, you know, the small group of men who signed the death warrant for Charles I, but it would have had no meaning without the swarms of people who were taking part in radical action on a day-by-day -day basis. So isn't history an act not only of heroic figures, though they are very important, but also of the power of ordinary people to take a democratic stand against what they consider to be problematic political situations? The power of ordinary people, like the power of heroes, is not a constant. It depends on who they actually are. And so when, when Marx points out not 
you know, that we should view Louis Napoleon, who, whose story I don't know that well. He would probably look much larger in today's light. Uh, you're comparing him to figures of the 19th century, but we're all pygmies now. Uh, you know, but let's, let's take Mark's observation that Louis Napoleon is a pygmy at face value. And this is also Carlyle's observation in a way. The way Car- the reason Carlyle loves uh, Cromwell, besides being a, having grown up as a Scots Presbyterian, the reason Carlyle loves Cromwell is that Cromwell, despite not having the title of a king, is a real king. Whereas, you know, Charles I is, despite having the title of the king, is a rather weak fellow. You know, Britain might be in a much better place if his brother Henry had lived. And Charles II never really regains the full powers of the monarchy. He makes a deal. So those powers effectively are never really restored. You know, James makes some efforts to kind of restore the throne, but, you know, Elizabeth I would laugh at this. And even Elizabeth I is a little too dependent on her advisors for my comfort. So the important point here is that it depends who power is held by. Mm-hmm. And so when you're saying, I want Elizabeth I to hold power, that's a very different thing than saying, I want Elizabeth II to hold power. I mean, one of my favorite historical questions for Brits is just simply to just genuinely and sincerely and without any kind of intellectual validation, just picture the what Elizabeth I would think of Elizabeth II and the Britain that has been made during her platinum jubilee you can refresh yourself you know by reading the elizabethan poor laws or something like that so when i look at the the masses who supported cromwell this was indeed a very special time in history who were these people they were the puritans what clothes did they wear what did they look like how did they act uh were they were they godly or were they dissolute and how would they judge the supporters of Brexit today? Suppose you could put a, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, the average Brexit voter today in front of an East Anglian Puritan from the 1630s. How would they judge these people? Would they judge these people to be worthy of governing Britain or even capable of governing Britain or even capable of holding the reins of Britain? Of course, they would not. They would basically say, not only are these people incapable of governing others, they have no right to govern others. They have not the power to govern others. And if you pretend the illusion of giving these dissolute yabos basically power, their reins will be instantly wrenched from their hands. I would not be, uh, you know, I would be an interesting long bet for us to bet whether in 20 years a Britain will cancel Brexit and return to the fold of the EU. I would not be at all surprised. But, the- but, you know, the principle of, you know, you can get rid of the symbolism of subservience, but the the reality of subservience is still there. These people are not capable of sovereignty. Which people? The British people. And, and this is also one of the downsides of, like, I'll be honest with you, let's talk about where the Roman Empire sort of went wrong. It was certainly by no means a perfect system. It decayed. It sort of fell back on the hereditary principle and, uh, you know, decayed into some rather bad stuff. It had this good period of the five good emperors later, but it was never perfect. But what we observe under the Roman Empire is that similarly, very rapidly, and this decline had already begun and it marked the decline of the Roman Republic, the people of Rome became no longer capable of a Republican form of government. Power could not be put back into their hands. They did not truly want it. They were not truly worthy of it. To rule, any group of people needs to feel the right to rule. And if they don't have that right, 
if they do not have the capacity and the wisdom to do it, they will not feel that right, and the result will be a joke. In fact, the last Roman Empire to hold, to actually try to hold elections was Caligula, and it was considered a complete joke. Tiberius takes office, and he's basically like, okay, I'm the first citizen. Hey, senators, you govern Rome. And the senators are like, okay, what should we do, Tiberius? That that organization was simply no longer, that, that compound structure was no longer a hero. It took power because it was a hero and it was denied the rights of heroes. You know, this is how democracy happened in the UK. The Puritans looked at the Cavaliers and were like, who are these decadent fops? We are the godly. We are the strong. We are the many. You know, we have guns and guns have leveled the playing field. All of these factors have now been reversed. Mass power no longer matters. In, in a military sense, in the way that it used to. The future belongs to drones and artillery. So that's not a factor. Yeah. You know, okay. large masses of virtue among the populace, you know, in any sense that a Roman or a Puritan would recognize, do not exist. So, you know, how are you still, it's you who are basically taking this, this monstrous mediocrity and insisting that it needs to rule. It is a mediocrity far more mediocre and far more monstrous than Louis Napoleon ever was. Yeah. Okay. So I think we have discovered, firstly, your ahistoricism and the suggestion that a Brexit voter from 2022 would go back in time and have some strange encounter with a Puritan from 1643. It's a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical that doesn't make sense in any kind of historical way, because what actually does bind those two people together, despite their vast differences in religious belief and moral conviction, is the idea of sovereignty. And when you say that the British people are not worthy of sovereignty, you're talking to one of the British people out of millions who voted to restore sovereignty in this country and who did so for a very particular reason, which is that ordinary people are more trustworthy than a jaundiced monarch or a completely self-protecting oligarchy slash cathedral in terms of working out what's best for the nation. And just to give you a historical example, you talk about the idea, the Carlisle idea, and other people put forward a similar idea that Cromwell was a good king, whereas Charles I was a was a weak king or a bad king. Both of them are vastly Cromwell, preferable to what we have Crom- now. Cromwell wasn't a good king. Cromwell was a good lord protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And he was a good lord protector precisely as a realization of the sovereignty of the British people. It, he wasn't a monarch in the way that Charles I had been a monarch. He was enacting a presumed sovereignty on the part of the British people. Now, as we know, he then reacted against sovereignty and democratic sovereignty and popular sovereignty going too far in his reaction against the levelers and his his reaction against the Putney debates, which took place not far from where I'm talking to you now, which are basically the modern origins of contemporary democracy. He pushed back against what he considered to be those democratic excesses, and he restored uh, a, a more oligarchical, and then eventually we had the devastating uh, restoration of the monarchy. But I want to put it to you that there's a question from this, which, and it comes back to a question I asked you at the beginning. You know, really in the post war era in Europe, we have had numerous thinkers from Carl Schmitt right through to the modern era who have essentially argued that parliamentary democracy and especially popular democracy uh, 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 needs to be insulated 
from the pressures of ordinary people. And that has been, I, in my view, that's the wrong lesson that was drawn from the Nazi period, and it's the wrong lesson that was drawn from the, the calamities of the 20th century. But I hear that all the time from woke sections of the elite and so-called liberals and others, that we need to insulate the democratic process, that we need to create uh, layers of frustration, whether it's in terms of judicial oversight or European Commission-style bodies that will limit the ability of ordinary people to impact on political life. And that's something I am deeply opposed to as someone who thinks that ordinary people are far wiser than the cathedral or the expert class. They what are, but it's what not distinguishes, a high bar. What distinguishes your yearning for a monarchical figure from the liberal elite's a belief that the expert cliques must govern society. Because they're totally different, but they have the same um, enemy in a way. And the anti-democratic tendency that you describe is older than the war. In fact, it really dates back to the Fabians in the UK. Ultimately, I believe it dates back to Carlyle. And because Carlyle essentially influences, although many people see Carlyle as a progenitor of fascism, which is in some ways true. Hitler was a huge Carlyle fan. Ruskin was also a huge Carlyle fan. And the Fabians essentially came out of the cult of Ruskin. So in fact, you see Carlyle in little, literally everything. There's no use in being an anti-Carlylean. We're all Carlyleans <laughs> today. And um, <laughs> I'm not anti-Carlyle, so, but I'm critical. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. He's a he's a lovely he's a lovely you know um, and beautiful writer. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a very simple answer because for two things, you know, once you step outside your linear Western way of thinking, for two <laughs> things to oppose a third does not mean that these two things are the same. And so when yeah. you look at the early progressives and their anti-democratic thinking and the modern progressives and their anti-democratic thinking, it's a sh- it really is a shame that they have to lie, that they can't basically come out and simply say that that's what they're doing. And they sort of had to like fetishize this word democracy, which is one of the sort of historically just one of the most marginal and least successful political systems ever. Mm -hmm. They sort of fetishized it while, you know, describing its reverse. If you go back to, you know, the progressives that I like the most tend to be the earliest progressives. If you go back to America in um, the early 20th century, and I know early American progressivism a little better than I know early English progressivism, but they're sort of the same thing in a way. What you see is a bunch of aristocratic intellectuals, smart, well-educated, philosophical people such as yourself. And I, I'm actually curious as to what you, how you feel about the Fabians in this day and age. And so these people look at um, politics. And you know, one of my favorite things to, to observe is that Democracy is a holy word and politics is a dirty word, and yet they're synonyms. And if you look at where that strange discontinuity came from, it came from people observing early 20th century, for example, American politics, which is very like China today. Everything is corrupt. Uh, I guess China is at least a dictatorship. But at the lower level, you have just an enormous amount of corruption. You have an enormous amount of just public mendacity, yellow journalism, the rest of it. And so what you're really seeing in the birth of progressivism, which continues to this day, is essentially the restoration of oligarchy on a class basis. This is the aristocracy, the PMC that you hear so much about. The the whole progressive era is a coup by this class against what comes out of actual democracy, which we also call populism. 
So the problem is, yeah, I do have, in fact, an even harsher impression on an absolute scale of the quality of populism that the progressive elite has. I also have much the same view of the progressive elite that populism has. And if you'll allow a third dimension, these views which seem quite antithetical to you in 2D actually make complete and perfect sense in 3D. The, the problem is basically your fear of this third dimension, which is monarchy, which is simply the system of government that has you know, been practiced at almost all times in human history. Moreover, it's the system of government that produces everything around you. That microphone in front of you was created by a monarchy. If you drive a car, it was made by a monarchy. Actually, if you have a product, your microphone was probably made in China. So it was made by a company in China, meaning that it was made by a monarchy inside a, a monarchy. Imagine taking any oligarchic institution today, such as, let's say, the U.S. Department of Transportation decided, decided to design and build electric cars. Imagine how well they do with that. Right now, we see an oligarchic form of government, which is NASA, competing against a monarchical form of government, which is SpaceX. They're both building rockets. The comparison is absurd. It's night and day. So that is true. And yet, if you basically tried to say, let's imagine we tried to build a rocket in a democratic way, what would that amount to now? Well, we'd probably crowdfund it. And we'd probably, we'd run as, you know, maybe we'd have elections maybe on the blockchain to decide on the design of the rocket engines or something like that. Uh, I mean, you know, to even get something that could even explode would be impressive. And so, you know, that's sort of the orders of magnitude that I see, like SpaceX versus NASA versus, um, you know, let's build a rocket, you know, on Patreon, you know, which is sort of the most democratic form that I could imagine. But see, that, that terrifies me even more about the prospect Great. of the neo-monarchy, because if I think about who are the most morally cowardly people in contemporary society, it is CEOs. It's big business. It's the people who have allowed the ideologies of the cathedral of that, as you describe it, that nexus of opinion-forming elites in the ac academy and the media has allowed those opinions to completely wash over them and who uh, they, uphold they, those opinions and who fly the pride flag uh, uh, for fear that they will be uh, chastised if they don't, who force their workforce to go through critical race theory training and who reprimand them for saying that this man should not be in a woman's toilet. I mean, they are completely and utterly susceptible and cowardly in the face of those oligarchical ideas, which I think are far more problematic than than the uh, monarchy proposition. You mistake, um, I think, realism for cowardice. There, there is a difference. Uh, just like the CEOs in China who made, you know, your microphone and your clothes and uh, maybe not your glasses, <laughs> you know, but basically made ev everything around you, you know, those CEOs also are completely compliant with the party line. In their countries, the party line happens to be a little more sane on some things and a little less sane on others. And, and this, this sort of sense of compliance Compliance with reality is, of course, one of the great virtues of monarchy and one of the great virtues of any functioning system. I think you're right in some ways that the compliance has been a little too obsequious in some places, and some CEOs are starting to um, 
sort of learn how to push back against that. I, you know, pr- pr- you know, one of the, the people I want to call out because I particularly admire them is the um, CEO of Basecamp, which is a very leftist European software startup who, uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, who decided that even though he was a leftist, he could not have a woke company anymore. And he basically said, if you're here to make this a woke company, here's your severance payment, get out. And he lost like 30 or 40% of his employees. And it was, I'll bet he was like, this is the best thing I ever did. And, uh, you know, Coinbase, an American company also did this and did it brilliantly. But since it was a crypto company, it wasn't as hard for Coinbase. You know, like Marx in some ways, uh, I believe that kind of structure is more important than ideas. I sort of do. It's like when you look at the attempts at the people that had the same ideas that I did, in the Victorian era, there was a sense where in terms of a very Marxian historical determinist, they were too early. They'd sort of found the wrong time for this. And I would also say that as a Democrat, in terms of Marxian historical determinism, you're like way too late late for that. You're like <laughs> expecting the Puritans to show up and then they're just not there. Let me you know, give you sort of one more anecdote about the difference between forgetting the dem- democratic ways of, of doing things um, about the difference between oligarchic and monarchical patterns of action. So in the late uh, Roman Republic, they had this thing where there was this huge problem with pirates on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, the pirates were like Mexican drug lords. They had entire pirate dynasties. It was becoming a real problem. It was messing with the food supply. And finally, these late Republicans who were had their own very inefficient oligarchic system of government, which was you know completely different from ours and involved a lot of writing a lot of fancy letters in Latin, had had enough. And they were like, okay, we have failed to solve this in the Republican way, let us solve this in the military way, which was, of course, a monarchical way, knowing full well that this was a step down the direction to Caesarism, but they're like, fine, we're done. They appointed this guy named Pompey, who was kind of a little Caesar in some ways. Caesar eventually beats him in the Civil War. And they said, Pompey, you have monarchical command over the seas. Deal with the pirates. Pompey takes three months without computers, without internet, without guns, without anything. In three months, he builds a fleet and clears the sea of pirates. And people are like, whoa. And the modern equivalent of that was, you're going to laugh at me, but it was Obamacare. Remember the, yes, you laugh. See, the, the, remember the Obamacare thing where basically the DC oligarchical way couldn't do it with $500 million. And they're like, okay. Let's bring in some Silicon Valley guys and do it the Silicon Valley guy way. And the Silicon Valley guys, you know, get it done in like a month like this, right? And the difference there is not the ideas of the Silicon Valley guys, because I'm sure without exception, these people were all flaming electric blue progressives. But they knew how to work together in a monarchical way rather than an oligarchic way. So they didn't work basically as a bureaucracy. They worked as an army. And as an army, they just got it done like this. And so when you look at the difference between that way of working and the way of working that the European Commission or the State Department or Whitehall has, that essential difference is kind of what we need to have an effective government that that okay. functions. Yeah. A couple of quick things on that. The first is that I think there is a myth of the idea of Marx's historical determinism. I think the the teleological idea that progress is completely inevitable and will happen is a far later Marxian 
concept rather okay. than a Marxist I, one. You can correct me on Marx. I, you know, like, I have not actually read Marx. I admit it. Yeah, it's the wrong. point, the point that Marx. Marx and his um, the people who followed him who who were also very sensible, the point that they made was that there is an evolutionary aspect to shifting society in a new direction in the sense that capitalism goes in a particular direction. But there's also a revolutionary aspect too, which is the conscious determination off a group of people that they will push things in a slightly different direction. So that sense of human agency was absolutely key rather than a deterministic view of how history works. So that's what I'd say on that. But just my final question for you, because we now actually have run out of time, which is uh, my fault as much as it might be your fault. It's definitely my fault, but go on. On the grand leader question. The one thing I wanted to say on that, your arguments on that do sound similar to the kind of Max Weber view. He's the late 19th century, early 20th century German sociologist who emphasized very much the kind of role of charisma in leadership, the charismatic authority figure. And the question that constantly raises in, in my mind is, from where is authority derived? Is it derived from charisma, which strikes me as a very flimsy uh, contingent phenomenon, or is it derived from a body of people who have a very clear interest in the future of society and very clear ideas for how that should happen? So I- I'm still concerned very much by this slightly despotic idea, in my view, of the of the great leader who could fix society. But I just have one more thing I wanted to ask you about, Curtis, which I think is quite important, which is about the alt-right. And mm. um, you have been associated with the alt-right, or, or certainly you've been described as someone who influenced them in the past when they existed. And I did want to ask you about that and, and see what you say about that now, because I work for Spiked. Spiked was implacably opposed to the alt-right in the sense that we saw them as having very questionable views and in some ways being a strange mirror image of the identitarians that they were challenging in the sense that they also put forward a culture of identity, a culture of victimhood, uh, an obsession with race, and all those other problematic views. So you have been associated with the alt-right. Is that an association that you are happy to defend or is it something that you consider to be a problem? Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, specifically to avoid this problem that I, you know, you're using terms like movement and so forth earlier. And, uh, you know, I think Marx made this mistake. Plato even made this mistake of um, trying to be more than a philosopher and, you know, trying to be an organizer in some sense. Plato makes his trip to Syracuse. Marx gets involved with like the International Working Men's Association, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't think these things reflected well on these people as philosophers, essentially. I think they, you know, it's sort of like Michael Jordan trying to play baseball, uh, you know, and sorry, that will ring no bells to you. Absolutely. But, um, um, but maybe you, maybe you'll understand the spirit. I don't, I don't want to get into American sports, but, um, <laughs> in any case, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of one thing, which is, I think that it's actually sort of really important for someone who wants to be a philosopher, or just, you know, a writer to basically recognize the difference between that and a politician. And I think I've done an okay job of that, probably places where I could have done a better job of that. Secondly, you know, when when you look at sort of the kind of the concrete differences in perspective between me 
and you know the Richard Spencers of the world. This is the person who coined the term "all right." Somebody was telling me that he'd been recently. Spencer had been like regurgitating a lot of my talking points, which he's certainly allowed to do. Uh, you know, if he decides he's he would rather be a philosopher or a writer than an organizer, uh, you know, all the all the best because I think that. Um, Hopefully he's better at that. But, you know, when I look at sort of that kind of difference in perspective, I think I want to go back to the sort of the difference between Marius and Sulla and Caesar and Augustus. Because essentially, you know, when you look at what is actually problematic about that discourse rather than what its enemies describe as problematic, I'm struck by the sense, you know, what's really problematic about that discourse is that sort of ironically, considering as their slogan is pale victory or whatever, I don't really think they have a broad enough concept of victory. I don't think they understand what it means to win in the sense that Caesar understood what it meant to win. And, you know, to Sulla, winning meant kicking your enemy's ass, whereas to Caesar, winning meant governing your enemy and watching him become gentle and flourish. And this is basically what I want for all the people in the Burlymont, for all the people in Whitehall, for all the remainers. Obviously, I might agree with them about Brexit being a shit show, but I disagree with them about everything else. But what these people deserve from government is they deserve to flourish and be happy, but they should not be in charge of anything. I think the uh, that's a good point on which to end, not least because in relation to the separation between philosophy and politics or thinking and action, uh, Spike's view has always been that, uh, similar to Karl Marx's, which is his idea that the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. So Curtis, on that note, thank you very much. All right. Enormous pleasure, Brendan. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.